Coming up on Tech Nation, Bloomberg Businessweek investigative journalist Kit Shalel talks about Dead in the Water, a true story of hijacking, murder, and a global maritime conspiracy. It makes the movie Captain Phillips look pretty tame. Then if you thought that all the new vaccines would be mRNA vaccines, you'd be wrong. Dr. Robert Coleman, the co-founder and CEO of Codagenics, shows us how to precisely engineer viruses which can be effective vaccines and can be delivered nasally. You heard me, no needle. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2017, I spoke with Edward Tufte, who is best known for his work in data visualization. I asked him, who or what is a cherry picker? I think we're all cherry pickers because once we have an idea, uh, all history will back us up because we, with the confirmation bias, we select things, we cherry pick. I think uh, almost all scholars are particularly in the social sciences, tend to be cherry pickers uh, because uh, uh, they know the truth to some extent and they uh, find evidence, they cherry pick the evidence. And this is an enormous problem for the consumers of information to identify whether what they're looking at has been cherry picked. And so if the presenter uh, fails to allow access to their underlying data, guarantee that's a cherry picker because they're afraid that somebody would look at the underlying data and find out how they looted it. <laughs> and they'll give you all kinds of excuses for why you can't have their data. It would uh, violate attorney-client privilege. It's trademarked. It's copyrighted. It would violate the HIPAA law, health privacy. And the real jerks will say, buddy, if I were to tell you this, I'd have to kill you. And if somebody says that, you should stand up and say, mother, you're a cherry picker. <laughs> So it's failure to provide sources. Another way to identify a, a cherry picker is if they fly very high high over the area. And it's in a kind of jargon, high-level flight. And so they talk about growth hacking, the analytics, and that similar kinds of, of stuff. And the way to, as a presenter, to convince yourself that you know, you're not a cherry picker and you're not just cherry picking the current jargon is by occasionally drilling down and showing that you have some hands-on experience. And so cherry pickers don't want to do that, or they often won't. And so that's another way is they have, they have a mastery of one level of kind of jargon and uh, cherry picking. The final way is kind of intuitive, but I think it's a very good one. If a presentation, if a technical report is just too good to be true, you're probably right. It's too good to be true. This is particularly the case in social science, which is very, very difficult. Social science is not rocket science. It's harder than rocket science. Real scientists have this wonderful golden guarantee that everything that they see and measure and think about is a product of the universal laws of nature, which apply to every particle in the universe forever. Human behavior, we're just these little bugs on this little planet. 
and it's very difficult to we can't do experiments on many on many human situations and so social science is really hard compared to the natural sciences where there's a truth guarantee, the laws of nature. And that's a big difference. And it's, and also people are doing studies about people. You know, flawed studying the flawed. Oh, good. In a, in a way, yes. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Well, you write about uh, cherry picking in Beautiful Evidence, uh, and the chapter title wins the prize. It's called Corruption in Evidence Presentations, Effects Without Causes, Cherry Picking, Overreaching, Chart Junk, and the Rage to Conclude. That's a line from Flaubert. It's in his letters. And my mother's research assistant translated it from the French. All humanity is besieged by the rage to conclude. And everyone everywhere thinks they know about the truth and about the mighty powers and everything. And on the contrary, he says, the greatest geniuses have never concluded. This 2017 Tech Nation interview features Edward Tufte. His many books on data visualization include Visual Explanations. A professor emeritus of political science, statistics, and computer science at Yale University, he today travels around the country giving his signature one-day seminar, Presenting Data and Information, which could have the alternate title, Don't Be a Cherry Picker. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, does what happens on the high seas stay on the high seas? What if you wanted to scuttle a 20-year-old container ship full of $100 million worth of oil and collect the insurance? Bloomberg journalist and Bloomberg Businessweek writer Kit Shalell talks about Dead in the Water, a true story of hijacking, murder, and a global maritime conspiracy. There are villains everywhere. Then, while I know the term virus has become a very unpopular word, Dr. Robert Coleman, the co-founder and CEO of Codagenics, is the likely candidate to change your mind. Not only can our traditional virus-based vaccines get better, they can be delivered nasally. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global. On the web at mindk.com. And now, Kit Shalell. Kit, welcome to Tech Nation. Thanks for having me, Maura. Now, once the pandemic uh, set in, suddenly global supply chain became an everyday term. And uh, just like so many Lego blocks, the world's oceans and the global economy It depended on all these 40-foot container ships. Excuse me, the containers are 40-foot. These container ships are all over the world, and that's what was actually delivering everything to our doors. Yeah, the, the, the pandemic gave us a kind of a rare opportunity to realize how important shipping is to us because I'm sure, you know, me, like many of your listeners, 
we bought loads of stuff in the lockdown. We, you know, we were bored and we bought loads of things off Amazon and many of those things would have been made in China and shipped to our shores. And, you know, it was an opportunity for us all to think about how much we rely on those systems. And we still really do rely on shipping to get us the things we need. Now, people who have seen the 2013 Tom Hanks movie, Captain Phillips, know about these container ships. And let's describe the one we're going to talk about today. So the Berlante Virtuoso is the ship at the center of our book. And it's uh, a gigantic rusting oil tanker, I guess, is the best way to describe it. The length of a couple of football fields, uh, the side of the hull, maybe 50, 60 feet tall, big enough to carry a million barrels of oil and big enough that if you wanted to go for your morning exercise, you could comfortably jog around the outside. Uh, really a, an enormous thing. Now, you said it was old, but is it is it still good? It's going to still go on for years? Is there a lifetime on these ships? Yeah, these, these big commercial vessels definitely have uh, a working life. And the Berlante Virtuoso was coming to the end of its usefulness. It was maybe 20 years old. Um, but actually, more importantly than that, it wasn't in great shape. It hadn't been that well cared for. The engine was faulty and prone to breaking down. You know, it hadn't been well maintained. It was coming to the last couple of years of its life before it would be sent off to be scrapped. So in this story, it's, it loads up all this oil, $100 million worth of oil, mm. in a, a port in the Crimea, still Ukraine at that point, And it's going to go through the Suez Canal to eastern China. But everybody knows that once you come through the Suez Canal, you can run into Somali pirates. Back in 2011, which, which, is, uh, which is when our book starts, the Suez Canal was, was pretty much the most dangerous place for a large commercial ship on the planet. Every couple of days, Somali pirates would attempt to hijack one of the 50 to 100 large ships that, that transit the Suez Canal every day. And uh, so it's a nervous time for everyone. There are sort of certain security measures that you're expected to take when you pass through. But there's a definite sense that you take your life in your hands. At that particular moment in time, all the sailors would have been thinking about piracy. Now, you can see the preparations in the Captain Phillips movie. I mean, there's, you know, they're getting ready with water guns. They've got mm. all kinds of, you know, barbed wire. They're, they're all set for this. But uh, in a in a departure from the Captain Phillips movie, uh, when a fast boat of men with Kalashnikovs approach you and say, let down your ladder, you don't do it. <laughs> I mean, look, I'll be honest. <laughs> Even I know that. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't. Um, it would seem to set off red flags for me. Uh, uh, the, uh, bear in mind, this is the Berlante was waiting for a security guard to come and help it come through this really dangerous area. And so it's the middle of the night. It's it's around midnight when this vessel approaches. And, you know, the men on board the little boat that speeds up are wearing masks and carrying long rifles. You know, they look like they're in sort of camouflage gear. Um, it would seem to be an atrociously bad idea to let them on board. But that's exactly what the captain ordered. And it's because the men identified themselves as being the security guards. We're the security, they said. And so they were invited on board. What happened then? Take take us through it. Well, almost immediately on uh, them lowering the ladder and the armed men coming on board, they pointed their rifles at the Filipino crew of the Berlante Virtuoso. They rounded everyone up uh, and they locked them in the television room, which is like the crew hangout. And they took the Filipino captain and engineer away to the deck of the ship 
and you know for the next period of three or four hours kind of chaos ensued the the engine started up then then they stopped there were gunshots the crew could hear gunshots and then suddenly an enormous explosion and uh, black smoke starts spewing into the tv room where all this all the sailors are being held and they they come out they ha- they're forced to flee the pirates have gone the captain's tied up on the bridge and this vessel carrying you know 100 million uh, barrels of oil is burning and now we're on page 27 <laughs> <laughs> and there's more detail in there oh my goodness oh my goodness um and so let's let's take a quick departure here. You know, you mentioned the Filipino crew um, on the economic front. I was shocked to hear how much they were paid and how much they had to work had to sign on to this proposition. Yeah, um, the the role of the sailors is really interesting in modern shipping. It used to be that the people crewing the ships that gave us the things that we buy when we go to the shop. You know, they would be large numbers of British or American or French or South African sailors from all over the world. But but shipping has has become this brutally competitive industry, this relentless drive to lower costs. And, you know, we all benefit from that. There's a reason that I can afford to have in my pockets a phone containing, you know, microchips assembled in Asia. Uh, and that stuff can flow through to our markets so cheaply and efficiently, in part because of this drive to keep costs down. It's an amazing system. But a a sort of human consequence of all that is that the sailors, um, they don't earn very much money at all. uh, And they often come from developing countries with very low incomes. The Philippines is a huge one. India, Pakistan, um, places like that, places where people are willing to be away from their families for nine months at a time and earn almost no money. You know, actually, it's it's a better income than you might earn otherwise in, in the Philippines, which is why so many of them become sailors. So most of the crew go up on to the bridge and they find mm. the uh, captain and the ship's burning. So what do you do with a ship? You get off the ship. Now, the ship may be burning, but whenever you have a ship burning, Now let's talk about insurance. And for centuries now, we thought of ships at sea, well, they'd be insured by Lloyd's of London. Lloyd's of London is involved, but what I didn't know, Lloyd's of London is not an insurance company. Yeah, Lloyd's of London is is one of the world's most important financial markets, really. It's, um, It's the global center of all kinds of insurance, specifically the kinds of insurance you need for the really big stuff. If you want to launch a satellite or you, you you want to start a you know an NFL franchise, and you need insurance for a large sum of money, any complicated risk, you have to come to Lloyd's. Lloyd's is the place you come, and it's it's a marketplace, not a company that sells insurance. So all the world's biggest insurers, the likes of you know Alliance, Prudential, all the names that we know well, they all have operations at Lloyd's, and there they divide up each one of those risks, each one of those insured cases, they split it up between them. And so they can insure almost anything. And, and literally almost anything has been insured at Lloyd's. They'll insure, if you're a rock star, they, they'll insure your voice. Bruce Springsteen's voice was once insured at Lloyd's. Uh, David Beckham, the famous British soccer player, his legs were insured at Lloyd's. And that, that runs through from you know celebrity stuff through to gigantic oil tankers that might be selling oil from Ukraine and China. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Bloomberg journalist and Bloomberg Businessweek writer Kit Shalel. You may know him from his investigative work in Chinese state hackers, 
questionable Nigerian oil deals, and Irish sectarian gangsters. With Bloomberg Businessweek writer and editor Matthew Campbell, he's written Dead in the Water, a true story of hijacking, murder, and a global maritime conspiracy. Well, with insurance comes investigations, and David Mockett enters the picture while salvage is already underway. Yes, um, what you've got with the Brillante Virtuoso is a really strange incident. Apparently, pirates board in the middle of the night. They, for whatever reason, start a fire that ultimately destroys the vessel, uh, and then they flee. Um, and, you know, this doesn't look much like normal Somali piracy. It's not what they do in Captain Phillips. Why would you take possession of this prized vessel worth $100 million and counting and then blow it up and leave? It, it doesn't make any sense. So the right from the start, the insurers who were involved with the vessel, you know, they had questions. They wanted to know what happened. And the way you find out what happens at sea, if there's an accident or a fire, is you hire a maritime surveyor. And David Mockett was this British eccentric British guy who lived in Yemen, just a few miles away on, in the port of Aden. And so uh, the insurance syndicate hired him to go out, put his boots on the, on the deck, uh, and try and find out what happened. And he looks around, gets off the boat. Then David Mockett's car blows up. David was murdered in the middle of his investigation, only a few days after he'd done a survey of the Brillante Virtuoso. He'd taken his photographs. He'd sent an initial report to London saying he had doubts about what, what he'd seen. Only a few days later, very sadly, he was assassinated by a bomb that was placed under his car uh, and killed instantly. And that event really um, forms the basis of the book and, and the consequences of that moment have been felt around the world for years afterwards. But I do want to ask about a number of aspects that I think we we don't quite understand or didn't know before. Um, for instance, when a ship is in distress, uh, there's an automatic signaling system that can get triggered and it goes far and wide. Yeah, but well, the reason for that is that, um, you know, a, a, a large ship getting in trouble is a, is a major international event. Uh, let's take the example of the Brillante Virtuoso. It's carrying a million barrels of oil. Um, if the fire on board destroys the vessel to such an extent that it spills oil all over the Gulf of Aden, you're looking at a billion dollar cleanup, you know, catastrophic damage, uh, a major geopolitical event. So there has to be a whole infrastructure in place to deal with these gigantic ships when they get into trouble. And um, one of the, the early alarm systems that they use specifically for piracy is a security button that's hidden in the bridge. It's literally a hidden button like, like you'd have in a gas station to alert the police that you're being robbed. It's a similar deal. There's a, there's a, there's a secret button that gets pressed and that, that button instantly sends out information to all the naval forces in the area, the local authorities, the various security uh, organizations that, that operate in the maritime world and tells them there's a problem. And so we start on this huge amount of information that's flowing, different players, some of whom we know or have to be uncovered, and the impact of who owns the ship, that suddenly becomes an issue. How do you track who owns the ship? Yeah, this, this incident of piracy and the burning of the Brillante sets off a chain of events that echoes from Dubai to the Philippines to London to New York and Greece, you know, when you've got a vessel this size, the financial interests involved are enormous. 
and you know the implications for a whole lot of people are, are, are huge as well and so a whole chain of events kicks off and everyone with a financial interest in the vessel everyone all its owners all the people trading the oil they all want to know what happens and they all need some sort of resolution not only that it's insurance so i'm not at fault pay me so everybody's deciding everybody else is at fault right yeah the i mean the whole the whole purpose of insurance uh, often is is blame what's the cause of an incident um is this incident covered by an insurance policy which you know sounds like a kind of technical arcane question to ask um but in the case of a ship like the Brillante Virtuoso that's attacked that can be the difference between the ship owner receiving 80 to 100 million dollars from a Lloyd syndicate or the ship owner getting nothing and maybe even potentially being charged with a crime so you know it's a very high stakes game that gets played we also associate rules with countries and where the ship was was intentionally docked off of Yemen but not inside Yemen I mean how does this work in the world there is no country there's no law to decide whose country does this follow yeah that's it's often said that um the, the open seas are lawless um, we you know we say this in the book it's 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 not strictly true but to all practical purposes it is when you're out on the open ocean there's no police force there's no federal agency that's governing your behavior really you know on these vessels the captain <laughs> is has godlike authority over his crew and all sorts of mis misdemeanors happen out on the open ocean that, that never go punished it's a whole problem in itself technically the law that governs what happens on a ship is uh, the law of the flag that's flying on the deck. Um, so if you're flying a U.S. flag and you're registered in the U.S., U.S. law applies to what happens on the ship. But many, many years ago, you know, the major ship owners stopped flying the flags of the likes of the U.S. and the U.K. It was too expensive, too much hassle, you know, too many people wanting to, uh, to inspect your vessel. So they ditched that years ago in favor of what are called flags of convenience, which is much cheaper, it's lower costs, lower regulation. Most ships these days will be flying either the flag of Panama or Liberia and West Africa, which is what the flag that was flying on the Brillante Virtuoso. There's another aspect here that I was interested in throughout this story. There are so many different villains. <laughs> it's like not one and who hired a couple. There are villains everywhere. I was very touched with the story you told about how you and your co-author, who interviewed like 75 people and went over tens of thousands of court documents. There was uh, pages of court, court documents. I mean, there was, there was an enormous effort to research all of this. And it took you four years. And somewhere in the middle, you contact one of the Filipino crewmen who say, well, I told the story. And uh, well, you tell the story about what he did. Yeah, this was an amazing moment. Um, Matt and I had been, you know, up to our necks in the Brillante Virtuoso and all the criminality that came on this one ship, which you'll have to read the book to discover that, you know, more than one crime, let's just say, happened on board this vessel. And like you say, more, you know, dozens of villains involved. We'd been chasing around after the ship to find out what really happened and to unravel the mystery for years. Um, and a key moment came when you know we went through the list of crewmen and tried to find them all and matt happened to find one of them on facebook you know for all the investigative reporting that you hear about 
it comes down to Facebook. Filipino sailors use Facebook because it allows them, I guess, to stay in contact with their families and see pictures of their kids. Matt found the sailor who actually had lowered the ladder to the pirates back in 2011. And he was at that moment, he was on a vessel uh, anchored off the coast of France. Uh, and almost immediately, he started telling this incredible story of, you know, I've been afraid for my life for years because of what happened that night. Um, I was encouraged, I was threatened into telling a false account of what happened. But now I'm ready to tell the truth. I'm not afraid to die. And that conversation, you know, kicked off uh, a whole sequence of events involving the police and the insurance companies uh, that made life really complicated for a while. <laughs> well, you know, he wasn't the only one that uh, was threatened. Um, both of you were warned on more than one occasion that uh, to stop doing this investigation. How were you warned? And, and when did you know to take it seriously? Well, I, I, I guess the way to answer that is to, is to understand the nature of modern shipping. And, you know, I'd assumed that the, the, the days of pirates and swashbuckling misdeeds on the ocean had been consigned to history. You know, every, everything's high tech these days. Everything's transparent. But the, the deeper we delved into the story of this one ship, the more I discovered that simply isn't true. On the fringes of shipping, there's a thriving criminal underworld. And um, shipping has become so vast and lucrative that the criminals who operate in that space, they've grown in, in, in sophistication and ambition in lockstep with the booming global trade. So shipping fraud is multiple billion dollar business. It involves organized crime groups from across the world. Um, it's a dangerous game. Uh, so, you know, we, we became aware of witnesses in this case being threatened. We learned that um, one of the lawyers involved had been badly beaten in Greece by unknown assailants. Um, there was a guy who had to be flown out of Yemen by armed guards, under armed guards, because he was told his life was at, was at risk. You know, we're talking about the kind of the really dark and dangerous stuff that you see in the movies. And I was, as journalists, you know, we, we're, we're somewhat removed from that. We are much less vulnerable than, say, a Filipino sailor or, you know, someone operating out of the port in Piraeus in Greece. But we were, we were often warned, particularly by the police, um, that we were getting into territory that was really genuinely dangerous. And, it, yeah, it was a police officer who told us, you know, don't go on holiday to Greece anytime soon. <laughs> well, there's lots of places you could travel to discover what was going on with this situation. Where did you travel to? That's a good question. Um, the nature of this of this criminal conspiracy that we unravel in the book was, we you know, a genuine international enterprise involving, you know, political elements in Yemen, the top levels of Greek shipping. There were any number of places that we that we could have gone. We unfortunately weren't able to go to Yemen. You know, when this ship was attacked, um, Yemen was on the cusp of a, an incredibly violent and brutal civil war that's that's still playing out all these years later. And not only was it not safe for me and Matt to travel to Yemen, but I'm not sure what realistically what what answers we could have gotten if we had done that. Um, it turned out that one of the most useful places for us to travel was Egypt. Um, I, I took a trip to Cairo. I met some important sources there. Um, in, after the outbreak of war in Yemen, a lot of the people associated with the old regime fled, and lots of them ended up in Cairo. So I had some some very interesting reporting adventures in you know one of the more dangerous neighborhoods of Cairo, meeting meeting Yemeni citizens who were in hiding. 
Bloomberg Businessweek investigative journalist Kit Shalell is the author of Dead in the Water, a true story of hijacking, murder, and a global maritime conspiracy. We'll talk more after a break. The Biotech Nation podcast individually can be found at biotechnation.com and separately subscribe through your favorite podcaster, including Amazon. Podcasts of whole Tech Nation programs continue to be available on NPR One and other podcast outlets. In the second half of our show, Dr. Robert Coleman, the CEO of Codagenics, shows us how a new era of how we develop vaccines has arrived. It's easier to understand than you think. Stay with us. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm speaking with Bloomberg investigative journalist and Bloomberg Businessweek writer Kit Shalell. With Bloomberg Businessweek editor Matthew Campbell, he's written Dead in the Water, a true story of hijacking, murder, and a global maritime conspiracy. Well, you know, you are known for covering some very interesting people. (laughs) I will say that. Uh, What did you learn from this that you perhaps did not know before about being an investigative journalist? Oh, wow. Um, Well, I've never worked on a story like this in terms of the fear that I encountered. You know, as, as as a journalist of Bloomberg, doing investigations, writing magazine features, you're often straying into territory that people would rather you didn't. So you become accustomed to you know, being threatened, having angry letters from lawyers, uh, being told generally that you're a nuisance and to go away. But um, it was actually quite humbling and frightening in this case, talking to people who had much more at stake than their reputations and a bit of money. This is this was life and death. Um, the terror that we encountered for people who, just even when you utter the words Berlante Virtuoso, the look people would give us or what they would say, um, was like nothing I've ever encountered. And it's very difficult to manage that. You know, obviously you don't want to put people at risk in pursuit of a journalistic enterprise. But, you know, at the same time, both Matt and I felt an obligation to get the truth here, to to find out what really happened. So 
it was it was a, a learning experience juggling those two things. Well, uh, Kit, thank you so much for coming in. I, I hope you come back on Tech Nation. You're welcome anytime. Thanks for having me. Bloomberg journalist and Bloomberg Businessweek writer Kit Shalell is the co-author of Dead in the Water, a true story of hijacking, murder, and a global maritime conspiracy. It's published by Portfolio Penguin. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Codagenics of Farmingdale, New York, has developed the technology to precisely engineer viruses to do all sorts of things. Its current work to develop a COVID vaccine based not on that versatile newcomer, mRNA, but rather as a traditional virus-based vaccine, is not at all traditional. It would have protected against the Omicron variants even before there was an Omicron variant. In addition, it's delivered nasally. That's right, no needle. And its development, now in Phase 3, is now being supported by the World Health Organization. But there's more. The efforts of Codagenics are wide-ranging. New vaccines for RSV, influenza, yellow fever, dengue, and Zika. Also, viral-based therapeutics for cancer and more. What's important is understanding how these viruses can be engineered to have characteristics which not only deliver potency, but also are incapable of mutating into undesirable forms. It's called rational virus design. Dr. Robert Coleman is the co-founder and CEO of Codagenics. He'll explain how this approach changes what's possible in vaccine development and therapeutics in general. And it further has the ability to respond quickly and directly, as opposed to the trial and error method used before. Dr. Robert Coleman. Rob, welcome to the program. Hi, Moira. Before we get into what we can do today with better technology, I think we pretty much have all had multiple vaccinations at this point, right up to and including being vaccinated for COVID. But our vaccination started early, you know, for measles and polio and the list goes on. How would you characterize these vaccines, you know, that we took all throughout our lives uh, and how were they developed? Right. That's a, that's a great question. So, you know, the, those traditional vaccines have been extraordinarily effective at preventing disease even starting when when you were very young. And the best class of those sort of early childhood vaccines that we've all received, our children may have received, what are what are called live attenuated or weakened versions of the virus that you're trying to protect against. So they would take, it's actually kind of amazing to believe it was really done through trial and error, right? So they would take the measles virus and they would passage it either at cold temperatures or in chicken cells. And it would start to not like humans so much and would convert and it would start to mutate away from humans towards chickens. And then we'd actually use that virus to vaccinate ourselves against measles. And so those traditional vaccines have been amazing at preventing disease uh, because they are live weakened versions of the virus, but they were really made through complete trial and error, random mutation of really unknown results in the virus. <laughs> chickens, yes. chickens were involved yeah. in, their, in their development. They were, they were crucial like, to really one of the biggest advancements of humankind, right, has been for vaccination. And 
it's really through random changes, which is just kind of amazing to think about. And once you get one of those vaccines, this is what blows me away. How is the vaccine manufactured? How is it produced? They don't all use the same exact system, but some still are used. So, for example, a yellow fever vaccine is still manufactured in embryonated chicken eggs, where you inject the egg with a little bit of virus, you wait a few weeks, you harvest the vaccine stream from the egg, almost like an egg frappuccino. And that's what we're still using as a vaccine. And it's because we have to use the same system that made those traditional live vaccines. So that's also sort of ripe for, for innovation. But it's amazing to think about that a lot of these live vaccines that we still use sort of have an antiquated approach for production. Let me ask you, in COVID, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine was called a viral vector vaccine. Is, is that the same kind of thing? Uh, it's not exactly the same. They use a weakened virus, but instead it's more like a Trojan horse. So in that instance, Johnson & Johnson is using a virus called adenovirus as a way to deliver the spike protein to your immune system. So it wasn't like they took SARS-CoV-2 and put it in chickens for, for weeks on end. So they had an adenovirus expressing a piece of SARS-CoV-2 or COVID to get your immune system to make an immune response against spike. So there's a little subtle difference there between a traditional weak virus or live attenuated that has all of the proteins that you want to go against and the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which I sort of like to call a Trojan horse that expresses just spike of the that you're trying to protect against. And don't forget, for all those decades, we did not have the tools to go in and edit a virus, do any of those things. We had to keep trying until we got something that, oh, that works, and then we'll, we'll yes. keep that. So we just didn't have the tools that we have today. So, so, so we can see that the, uh, the viral vaccines are, are moving ahead. At the same time, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine was only 66% effective, while the other two COVID vaccines here in the United States, at least, were Moderna and Pfizer BioNTech, which are mRNA vaccines, completely different technology, were over 90% effective. Does that mean that these viral vaccines will be a thing of the past uh, and will just be going with the mRNA vaccines? Um, I, I don't think so. Um, of course, I'm slightly biased. But I mean, the common similarity between the mRNA and Johnson Johnson vaccine is what I call, they're really just antigen delivery systems, right? They're bringing an antigen to your immune system in order to engage it and have it make a lot of antibodies against said antigen that they want to target. So spike in the case of, of the COVID vaccines. And the mRNA is just very efficient at doing that. But I think we see with the current trend in COVID and variants emerging and need to update those vaccines that there's still an avenue if we can somehow figure out to make better live vaccines um, that may express not just spike, but lots and lots of proteins of the virus. Now, tell us what Codagenic does. Well, that's, I mean, so sort of to perfectly dovetail, thank you, Maura, is that, you know, if you think back to how those for traditional live vaccines were made. Well, or why were they so great is because they weren't just expressing the spike of the virus. It's actually mimicking the wild type virus. So it's expressing all proteins of the virus. And that's sort of the, the next generation codogenics approach is those traditional vac vaccines may be limited in their genetic stability. So they were randomly mutated to become vaccines. 
And what Codagenics has been able to do is we found a way to recode the DNA of a virus such that it's genetically stable now, it will not revert, and it can actually be used as a vaccine that express not taking COVID, for example, not just spike, but all the proteins of SARS-CoV-2 to get all the benefits of a traditional live vaccine, right? Spike immune response, but immune response to all proteins of the virus. Well, it occurs to me that, first of all, you can take the virus you're after and completely decode its DNA. Yes. So it's actually a completely digital. So the way Codagenics really does it is the commonality for all human virus is your body, your nose, take COVID, for example, or your cells. They want to come in or the virus wants to come in, make a trillion copies of itself in as little as eight hours. Now, that's a big number. But the virus wants that process to be very, very efficient. So it's made its genes very, very favorable for translation efficiency or production in the human host cell. And so what we've done is our platform, unlike the other platforms, which I classify as antigen delivery, ours is really a software. So we have now understand how you can encode genes for very, very favorable translation or production in the human body and how you can encode a gene for very, very slow translation in the human body. And so what we can do is we can take the DNA sequence of a virus that's very fast. We can recode it for slow translation. We can insert that piece of DNA back into their genome. And now we've converted wild-type pathogen virus that makes you very sick into live attenuated vaccine. And it's universally applicable to viruses because it's not focused on one protein. It's not focused on random mutation. Instead, it's an algorithm that understands how to recode its DNA for for slow translation. So simply by slowing down how fast it replicates, you're weakening it, number one. Yeah. So when you say, okay, in in one sense, if they could have done that 100 years ago, what great shape they would have been. How do we slow down the virus? And then right now we're saying, well, what do we have to hit? You know, we're trying to get very excited about it. And you're saying, wait a minute, there's a lot of stuff we may not know. If we can slow down the whole thing, then the aspects that we don't yet understand won't matter because they'll be engaged in the human host. Right. Wow, I got to write on that. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Sometimes they say, well, it's not like that at all. So I'm really thrilled. I'm really thrilled. Now, I just want to ask a slightly different question here. I know that the, the Pfizer BioNTech and the Moderna uh, COVID vaccines had to be in these special freezers from the or, or refrigerators, deep, deep freeze, deep, deep cold from the point they were refrigerated to the point of delivery. Is that also true with these viral vaccines? Uh, no, that's actually so. Yet yeah, you can see that in order to keep the RNA stable, they have to use minus 80 degrees Celsius freezers. They have to ensure that the repository has those freezers. You see that they want to make the expand this ultra cold chain to sort of increase mRNA uptake around the globe. One of the best aspects of weak virus vaccines is that they usually only require a standard freezer or refrigerator. Sometimes they can even be lyophilized or turned into powder that can be reconstituted. And as you can see, and sort of one of the best examples for this is smallpox, right? In order to eradicate smallpox, they had a very you know, standard refrigeration or lyophilization for the vaccine. 
they didn't need to make freezer farms around the world uh, in order to eradicate smallpox. And so that's sort of one of the traditional benefits and global access for live vaccines is their ability to be, you know, stored in sort of standard conditions. Now, you've just finished phase two going into phase three. I think you've started phase three, the last phase of clinical trial before approval um, uh, on your own COVID vaccine. And I understand that this work at, at Codagenics is supported by the WHO. Now, there are easily a dozen COVID vaccines around the world. Why are they supporting your particular endeavor? Well, that's a, that's a good question. It sort of, you know, speaks to your last point. And I think the actual number on the WHO chart is 194 next generation oh. vaccine candidates. And why did they select Codagenics was, well, firstly, they, I think the WHO recognizes the benefit of live vaccines, right? And what they're capable of doing. But more importantly, what we've been able to show with our COVID vaccine, for firstly, it's intranasal. Um, so it can, has a potential to block transmission, induce mucosal immunity. But we showed in our phase one was demonstration of efficacy or potential for efficacy, excuse me, potential for a global distribution. So our, we're partnered with Serum Institute India that has massive ability to, for commercial scale of the product. But more importantly, some of the data from our phase one was that we showed, not only did we show 100% antibody or zero response rate in the participants, we showed the induction of mucosal immunity that could slow down replication of a SARS-CoV-2 virus. And to me, the coolest piece of data that sort of circle back, circles back to your original question, Moira, is when we looked at the T cells or the cellular immune system response to our vaccine, we saw that all of the participants, or on average, the participants in the vaccinated group made a five-fold increase in their anti-Omicron cellular immune response. So it included Omicron. <laughs> well, the cool, well, I didn't actually get to the coolest part yet. The what? coolest part is that this trial was done in early 2021. So this is when the individuals were being vaccinated. When we measured their T-cell response was towards the end of 21, but they made this Omicron response before the Omicron strain was actually prevalent. And they made the response to all the other proteins of SARS-CoV-2, not just Spike. And and so this is why sometimes live vaccines are called the sort of gold standard, where they may only require a few doses. They pro provide very, very long-term immunity. It's because they cover the span of the proteins in the virus. And to me, that's the coolest thing, right? Our vaccine recipients made an anti-Omicron cellular immune response before the virus was even on the scene. Well, that is exciting. I have to tell you, there are some people listening, a few of my friends among them, who held out for the Johnson & Johnson virus because it was only one shot. Big, strapping guys who were afraid. They said, just give me one shot. So when they hear, this is intranasal, you're just going to spray this up my nose, they'll be the first in line. You know, <laughs> it's like, so you don't have to have a shot. And we don't know how big the uh, immunity will be. But we know that you're not just focused on the one spike protein. You're saying, well, let's just take the whole cell. Let's just take the whole virus and, uh, and, and use that. That's very exciting. Especially because the proteins that... So why are variants emerging is because the spike protein is the virus that... The, is the protein of the virus that mutates the most, right? Trying to avoid antibodies. 
all the other proteins that sort of run that the machinery of the virus, they mutate very, very slowly. And that's actually what you make your cellular immune response against. And so if you can have vaccines that induce cellular immunity to the to the proteins that don't mutate as rapidly, you can get this very, very, very broad immune response. And we're hoping to show that in the, the WHO trial. It's a placebo-controlled trial. It's occurring Africa, potentially South America, potentially Southeast Asia. And right now we're, you know, it has a daunting task in the sense that it's a placebo-controlled trial looking for efficacy against Omicron. And I think we have real potential to do that based on what we saw in, in our early clinical development. So now let's uh, talk about vaccines and cancer. Cancer is not an infectious disease. I mean, we don't usually think of cancer and vaccines. What are you doing in that space? Yeah, well, I would, you know, I think sometimes people see the cotogenics oncology vertical that we're growing and they use the word cancer vaccine. It's not actually a cancer vaccine. Instead, we're designing viruses that we can inject into tumors that help recruit the immune system to the tumor and help clear the tumor. So it's really a next generation immune oncology therapy. It's not a cancer vaccine. Um, sorry to correct you, but... Uh, okay, no, it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> what we found though is that, what we found is that the algorithm, once we started designing these viruses for it to be safe and immunogenic vaccines, we also learned that the algorithm that understands the human genome and how to encode the genes can also be used when appropriately implemented to design viruses that are very, very potent treatments for solid tumors. And I think the way to sort of separate what Codagenics is doing from other, you know, the fields called oncolytic viruses or viruses to treat cancer is that we can take the inverse, the opposite approach. So most people have one virus and they're trying to see which cancers they work in. And so we can leverage Codagenics algorithm to instead take the opposite approach. Pick a cancer, screen viruses, design a cancer against, uh, excuse me, a virus against that cancer. And now we've had a custom immune oncology agent for whatever cancer indication you're pursuing. And, and sort of really Codagenics is in the virus design business. We leverage the human genome, we leverage synthetic biology, the, the ability to design DNA however we want, and now we can design viruses either turning them into prophylactic vaccines to protect against infectious diseases like COVID or RSV or dengue, or we can use the same algorithm to design a virus that's safe and also really likes to infect, kill, and, and recruit the immune system to a tumor. Now, let me get this straight. In all of these cases, you are building, engineering, designing viruses. And it's when you finally get to something you like, you take that virus and you replicate the virus. And that virus is exactly what you're injecting. In the case of, of the, the COVID vaccine uh, and its trial now, you're injecting that internasally right into my nose. Yes. Just giving me the virus. But we've been, sh I mean... It wasn't right off the shelf, right? First, we had to show to the regulators <laughs> that it was safe and, you know, safe and preclinical. It was safe in phase one. And and also to sort of circle back to the initial problem that Codagenics can solve is that, keep in mind, you know, those traditional live vaccines usually rely, or traditional live weak vaccines usually rely on a limited number of genetic changes. What Codagenics does is we insert hundreds, sometimes thousands of genetic changes 
that make the virus unable to revert. And so we can actually pull the vaccine strain out of the noses from our COVID trial. Now, there was a little bit in there. It, it wasn't very high level. Every the, place, uh, the safety profile was great. But more importantly, when we pulled the vaccine out, there were no mutations in the, in the designed region showing, we, uh, really proving the concept of supreme genetic, stabi uh, genetic stability using our design approach. So once you spray it in my nose, I got it in my nose forever? No, 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 no. It goes. <laughs> so the wild type would be there for eight, nine days, you know, orders of magnitude shedding capable of spread right to other individuals. Ours was there for a few days below, for the most part, the threshold for spread. And it disappeared within a few days, too. But when we would wait for the tail end to see if we could find it, we would sequence, you know, with, with um, we would we would sequence the virus and we could show there were no mutations uh, which I think the regulators really responded to as well. How many people work at Codagenics? Uh, right now we're at 28 individuals. 28 um, people. <laughs> and growing and growing. <laughs> well, you're not going to get to 28,000 in the next week. You got 28 no. people. You've partnered with people. You're sponsored. You've partnered with Serum Institute India. You've got, and that's just, this is just on the COVID. And you've got uh, WHO supporting you. Uh, you've got all of the other vaccines that you're working on. I'm very interested. How did Codagenics get started? Who, were, who who was involved? How did this all come to be? Well, that's that's a great question too. So we came from. So I was actually the graduate student pipetting, you know, some of the first work that became the core of Codagenics. My other co-founder, uh, Stefan Mueller, our st chief scientific officer, to me one of the most pivotal, you know, players in early synthetic biology. And then the third founder, Eckerd Wimmer was the first to actually synthesize a virus completely from small oligonucleotides, National Academy of Science members. So the three of us nucleated the company. We raised our initial money from NIH and then investors got interested. So the company started at just two individuals and now we're up, up to 28 and we emerged from, you know, probably one of the earliest synthetic biology labs there was at Eckers Lab at Stony Brook University. Well, let me let me uh, translate a little of this. Um, sure. uh, synthetic biology is when you literally uh, you don't just deal with a small part of a virus or a small part of DNA uh, in any kind of cell. Um, it means that you program the whole thing. You take yes. the whole thing and you program the whole thing, and it works and it is alive. So that's part of it. But I have never heard before that ha anyone saying that they 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 these people got together and nucleated the company. <laughs> what you did is you gave it the whole DNA, and that's how the company got started in a, in yes. a synthetic biology sense. <laughs> sure, exactly. I mean, the, the thing is, if uh, what you think about what Ecker did and our lab did with that viral synthesis was, you know, if you could take small pieces of DNA that you essentially ordered through your computer and you could stitch that together to make a virus, you're no longer bound by this to the natural sequence of the virus to make designs, to learn, to mutate it, right? Those are traditional weak vaccines, really are just variations of the natural sequence, right? They were just mutated in a chicken, as we said, or cold temperatures. If you can order the virus and design it on your computer, you can now mutate it extensively. And that's really what Codagenics has done. We understand how 
to encode human genes to slow them down. And now we can leverage our experience with stitching this design DNA into a virus. And now we've developed a platform that, again, is not an antigen delivery, right? We're not using adenovirus to carry spike or a virus-like particle. We have an algorithm where you input the wild-type sequence. It gets redesigned into a slow new sequence that has hundreds of mutations that when we put back it in, into the virus, it converts it from wild-type that makes you sick into one that can be an effective vaccine presenting all proteins to the, the immune system. Well, I, I now understand why your motto is uh, engineering viruses to transform global health. But I'd like to... I'd like to suggest another one. I just, uh, it's really sure. simple. Chicken free. I think, <laughs> I think that's where you should go with it. I can see the logo. I can see it. I want one of the t-shirts when you do your chicken, okay. free, chicken free t-shirt campaign. I'll make some. Okay. <laughs> Rob, thank you so much. I hope you'll come back and, and talk to us again. Yeah, I'd love to give you an update sometime in the new year on, on as the data is rolling in across the programs more. Dr. Robert Coleman is the co-founder and CEO of Codagenics in Farmingdale, New York. Since this recording, the rise of RSV in infants and young children and the impact of increased hospitalizations in pediatric wards has been widely reported in the mainstream media. There are no currently approved vaccines. Codagenics' nasally delivered RSV vaccine has been fast-tracked by the FDA the initial study in healthy children aged six months to five years is expected to begin in early 2023 after this year's RSV season with a confirming study in the 2023-2024 RSV season. More information is available at codagenics.com. That's CODA, C-O-D-A, Genics, G-E-N-I-X, codagenics.com. For Biotech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. TechNation and Biotechnation are productions of TechNation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.